Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, as we continue this series through the third chapter of John. Jesus is life, and this morning we're going to look at a message I've entitled, The Courtroom of Light. The Courtroom of Light. Many of you, I'm sure, are like me in that I really enjoy a good courtroom drama. Anybody enjoy courtroom dramas? I mean, John Grisham and the like. My affection for them probably started when I used to watch the old TV show with my mom, Perry Mason. And that's going to date some of you. And then the 1980s, this show came out, Matlock, which Matlock was actually produced by the same producer as Perry Mason. Now, you Gen Xers and you millennials, y'all don't know who Matlock is, and that's okay. But let me explain a little bit about Ben Matlock. Ben Matlock was this folksy, cantankerous defense attorney in Atlanta, Georgia, who always seemed to be hired by some uh, potential criminal that looked dead to rights as far as the evidence was, was concerned. They are guilty. And so he was hired, but he had this knack of going to a crime scene and looking at evidence and, and looking at things and seeing things that other people overlooked. And every one of his, his uh, episodes of Matlock kind of ended and climaxed the same way. Ben Matlock would be questioning a particular witness at the trial, and he would have these meandering questions that seemed to be disconnected from the facts of the trial that have been presented so far, and prosecutor would object to some line of questioning, and the judge would say, you're on a short leash, Matlock, and he would finally take all these disconnected questions and bring them to a conclusion, and then that witness who was on the stand, it turns out, was the actual perpetrator of the crime. And so there would be reasonable doubt for his client, and they would be exonerated. They would be found not guilty. These courtroom dramas, whether they're fictional like Matlock or real, like some that we've watched on television, they are fascinating to us because of all the human dynamics that are involved there. Love, hate, joy, terror. There's an intensity that are with those. Well, the Verses before us today in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 3 are something of a courtroom drama. But friends, this is not a fictional drama. This is a real courtroom drama. And this is the most consequential courtroom drama in history. Because the where you end up, the verdict you receive, determines your eternal destiny. Well, John employs some courtroom language in our focal passage today as he depicts what I'm calling the courtroom of light. And just to let you know, this is going to be a light sermon. (laughs) Not in the weight of its content, but in the subject matter. We're going to be looking at the subject of light, and particularly within a courtroom scene. So let's read our focal passage, John 3, verses 19 through 21. This is God's Word. Listen to it. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." Now, the word light is used five times in these three verses that we just read. But what may not have been as obvious to you is there's also courtroom language. In verse 19, the word judgment 
is a word which means a verdict has been decreed. In verse 20, the word exposed is often translated in John's gospel as conviction, another courtroom word. Verse 21, the word clearly seen means to be giving testimony. So all three of these verses use courtroom language to give testimony. A verdict is is rendered. There's conviction in a courtroom. Now, in case you've not been with us in our study in John chapter 3, let me give you a little background. At the beginning of this chapter, the first 15 verses, we see a conversation between Jesus and a high-ranking Jewish official by the name of Nicodemus. Verse 1 of this chapter tells us two things about Nicodemus' position and honor. It says, first of all, that he was a Pharisee. Now, what is a Pharisee? Someone who has a fastidious and exacting observance of the Old Testament laws and the Jewish traditions of the first century. He was a Pharisee. He had a vast knowledge of Old Testament law. Second thing verse 1 tells us is that he was a ruler. What does that mean? He sat on the equivalent of the theological and legal Supreme Court over Israel. He was a mover and shaker. He was a ruler over the people. Well, he comes to Jesus... At night, he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Keep that in mind as we think about the light. Nicodemus Nicodemus came to Jesus in darkness. And in that conversation, as he comes to this radical rabbi named Jesus, Jesus reveals two musts, two things that must happen if anyone would be saved. The first must he gave was this, you must be born again. And what this points to is the fact that every single one of us are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't even have the capacity to love God, the inclination to serve God. So therefore, we must have a supernatural new birth. We must be born of the Spirit. Second thing Jesus points out to Nicodemus, this teacher of the law, is he tells him, not only must you be born again, Nicodemus, but secondly, the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross. Why is that a must of salvation? Think of a courtroom. If you are guilty, you'll either pay your fine or someone else will pay the fine in your place. And if any of us are going to experience the forgiveness of God against the weight and the debt of sin that we deserve, Jesus must die on a cross. And as we look at a cross, I told you this a couple weeks ago, when you look at a cross, don't think so much that's the cross of Jesus think, that's the cross of Troy Walliser. That's your cross. And Jesus took it in your place. The Son of Man must die. Then last week, we looked at John 3.16 through 18. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. And as John summarizes Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, he lets us know the motivation for why Christ came and did what he did. Why did Jesus die in your place? For God so loved the world. And that includes, friend, even you. God loves you. And therefore, he sent his son on the very first Christian mission trip from heaven to earth. He sent his son to die for us. That's the motivation. And this love is for whoever. For God so loved the world that whoever, regardless of your background, regardless of the long laundry list of sins and infractions you've accumulated, regardless of the family you were brought up in, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your background, whoever believes. 
What a simple word, but what a profound meaning. Belief, according to the Bible, is not just having knowledge of the truth, which is vital and important and indispensable. It's not even assenting to the truthfulness of the gospel propositions that Christ died for sins and was resurrected to give us new life. Believing in Jesus, biblically, is trusting, clinging, relying, surrendering to what Christ has done in our place. And then last week we saw in verse 18, not everyone believes. Not everyone trusts. Not everyone relies on the love gift God the Father has given us in the sacrifice of the Son. In fact, look at verse 18 again, because this is really the setup for the courtroom scene we're going to see in verses 19 through 21. Again, verse 18, whoever believes, I told you he's repeating the words from verse 16, whoever believes, now watch this, in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes is repeated, but John switches from life and death language in verse 16. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life. He moves from life-death language to verse 18. He moves to judicial language. Whoever believes is not condemned. He's not judged. He doesn't receive the just penalty. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is the arena of a courtroom. A judge pronounces a sentence. Condemned. Here is your penalty. Jail time. The electric chair. Or not guilty. Not condemned. You are acquitted. You are free to go. Now there's a very important point in verse 18 that I didn't bring out last week because I wanted to bring it out this week to show you about this language. The reality is this. Listen, when Christ came to the world, he didn't come to a bunch of neutral people. He didn't come to a neutral humanity who were just neutral regarding God. The whole world, every single one of us, you were born under the condition condemned. It wasn't at some arbitrary time in your, the history of your life that you became guilty. It wasn't at some arbitrary time in your life that you became condemned. You were born condemned. That's the status of every person who's born in this world. Where do we see that? Look again at verse 18. Whoever believes in, the, in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This not believing didn't make you condemned. You were already condemned. In fact, look down at the very last verse of chapter 3. This truth is reiterated. I'm going to be preaching this verse 36 on Easter Sunday. So come back Easter Sunday and bring someone with you who needs to hear the gospel. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God is remains on him. In other words, you were born with God's wrath upon you. We are all children of wrath, right? We were born guilty. We were born sinners. I didn't have to teach my children to sin. They were born that way. Now, what does this mean? Whoever does not believe in Jesus, whoever does not obey Jesus, isn't just arbitrarily come under the wrath of God. They have been under the wrath of God. And so herein is the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Jesus came to rescue condemned people. 
Jesus came to deliver guilty people, which is all of us. Whether we stay that way, guilty, condemned, remaining under the wrath of God depends upon how we respond to what Jesus has done. Do you believe or not believe? Well, this is the whole setup for this courtroom of light I want us to consider in verses 19 through 21. Three verses and three things specifically I want to bring to your attention. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to see this decreed crisis. There's a decreed crisis. Here's a question for you. Since the gospel of Jesus is absolutely true, since it has been verified by convincing proofs and by personal testimony, why do people not believe it? Think about it in the, in the first century, not just 21st century, in the first century. Now think about Nicodemus. Here's Nicodemus, a ruler over Israel, a member of the high court, the Sanhedrin. But as far as we know, he's the only member of the religious council in Jerusalem that believed in Jesus. We do know he believed in Jesus. As we get to the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea buries Jesus in his tomb. You know who buried him with Jesus? Nicodemus. Nicodemus provided the wrapping and the spices to preserve his body. He was a follower of Jesus. Why did Nicodemus believe? In fact, in chapter 1, or excuse me, in chapter 3, at the beginning of this chapter, Nicodemus says, I'm coming to you because, one, you're a rabbi, you're a profound teacher, and two, you have signs that you perform that must tell us you are from God. Why did Nicodemus believe and none of the other members of the Sanhedrin believe? Why today, if you're here today and you're a believer, why are some of your closest friends, even your family members, not believers? Verse 19 gives us the reason for unbelief. Look at it again. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I want you to circle that word judgment in your Bible or on your outline. It's a Greek word. If we spelled it in, in, with English letters, it would be K-R-I-S-I-S, which spells crisis, from which we get our English word crisis. <laughs> this is the crisis. <laughs> this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Now, just to, who, what, is, what or who is the light that John's writing about here? The light is Jesus. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the light. All the way in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, look what John wrote there. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, that's Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who's the light? Jesus. Five chapters from where we are today. We'll be there in a couple of months. Jesus, in his own words, says this in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. But back to our focal text, we get a clear reason for why people reject the gospel, a clear reason for why they do not believe in Jesus. Look again at verse 19, the last phrase. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Here's what you need to know. Believing or not believing in Jesus is not so much decisional. 
Believing or not believing in Jesus is not so much transactional. It's not that people are given these two options and they're able to make an informed choice without any outside persuasion or influence. No. It is a choice. Make no mistake. It is a choice to not believe. But the reason people don't believe, there are huge torrents of motivation behind people's unbelief. There are tides of persuasion under people's disbelief in the gospel. Interestingly, the same Greek word that John used in verse 16 to describe God's love for us, it's a verb form of the noun agape. Most of you in church have heard of agape love. For God so loved, agape loved the world. That's unconditional love. That's sacrificial love. That's unidirectional love. John takes that same word for the love of God for us and describes the unbeliever's love for the darkness. It's unconditional love for the darkness. It's unidirectional love for the darkness. It's passionate love for the darkness. People don't believe. Why? Because they love the darkness. They love evil. They love sin. And I think it's fascinating that in this context of courtroom language, John is using this impassioned love-hate words. They love the darkness, and in the next verse we'll see they hate the light. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, people will be judged before the judgment seat of Christ for whether or not they believed in him. That's the consequence. But people believe or not believe based upon their passion, based upon their loves. There is a simple and straightforward explanation for the unbelief that's in the world. And perhaps this morning, listen, maybe the unbelief that's in your heart. You love the darkness. You know, there's a myth out there that the really intelligent people, the well-read people, the academics, the, the smart people who are skeptical of God, skeptical of the gospel, skeptical of the Bible, there's a myth out there that they've arrived at that conclusion solely because of their well-reasoned deductions and their developed arguments against belief and against faith. And that may be what comes out the other side. But I'm here to tell you, based on John 3.19, that's not the motivating factor. Their skepticism is rooted in the fact that they love the darkness. The head can come up with all sorts of reasons to justify what the heart desires. You've been there and done that before. You've justified and you've rationalized all kinds of things that your heart desires. In fact, look at this next slide. We are not so much rational people as much as we are rationalizing people. You know what I mean by that? We rationalize our decisions. We rationalize what we do. We are incredibly skilled at rationalizing sin. And the smarter a person is, the more rationalizing he's able to do. Some of the great intellectuals, some of the great philosophers of the last 300 years that have completely shaped cultures and societies that we know today, they have been shaped mainly by their own moral proclivities. In other words, they found reasons to disbelieve in God and the Bible so they could rationalize their desired immorality. They loved the darkness. Here's some names you've probably heard of. Rousseau, he was uh, 
instrumental in forming these ideas that really fueled the French Revolution of the 1700s. Karl Marx, Soviet Union, Communist China owes much of their culture to Karl Marx's philosophies and ideas. Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, Aldous Huxley. These are all thinkers and philosophers and intellectuals whose ideas and writings have completely shaped the world in which we live in today. People's ideals, people's thinking about the role of government, the role of parents, the role of purpose in life. All of these people I just mentioned lived incredibly depraved, immoral lives. Of course, there are professing Christians who have been notorious sinners. But my point is not that Christians never sin and only non-Christians and unbelievers sin. The point is these great intellectuals were not just writing and reasoning their skepticism of God separated from their moral inclinations. You follow me? One I would point out is a lady by the name of Margaret Mead. If you're in the field of education, you've probably heard of Margaret Mead. She was really portrayed as a groundbreaking um, forward thinker because of her book, Coming of Age in Samoa, which she wrote or published in 1928. Margaret Mead lived for an extended season in that southern, central Pacific, really secluded island of Samoa, and she observed, as an anthropologist from Philadelphia, she observed the culture of this secluded tribe of Samoans. And she put forward uh, these ideas about the Samoan culture. And in this book, she argued that the primitive Samoans enjoyed in their culture that was secluded from the West, secluded from the influence of Christianity and Judeo-Christian ethics, she concluded that these Samoans lived in kind of a free sex society. You could sleep with whoever you wanted to sleep with. There was no monogamy. Anything goes. And she put them forward as kind of this pure, unshackled, sexually free culture before the influence of the Puritanism of Christianity. Consequently, her arguments were foundational some 40 years later for the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s. She was a regularly featured speaker at events. She was a regularly featured writer. In fact, I've got a picture of her with Robert Redford from like 1978. She was a major influencer of the thinking and the culture of the 60s and 70s, the sexual revolution, which now has morphed into what we see today, where just a year ago, we couldn't have imagined the perversions that are being subjected upon our children. Thank you, Margaret Mead and others. It wasn't until after her death that the New Zealand anthropologist Derek Friedman also went to Samoa, and he argued convincingly that she had grossly distorted the sexual norms and practices of the Samoan people. According to Freeman, her findings were dubious at best and manufactured at worst. In his research, he discovered that the primitive Samoans actually did have a very strict sexual ethic. They believed in monogamy. Adultery was punished and frowned upon. 
So the supposedly pure and unshackled free sexual ethics of this primitive society, which is foundational in forming the sexual ethics of the 60s and 70s, and even today, was based completely upon flawed and dubious research. So why would she present this? (laughs) She loved the darkness. It's come to light since her death in, in private letters that have been published. Several things. One, she was married not once, not twice, but three times, and she carried on multiple adulterous relationships with other men during each of those marriages. Further, these letters have revealed that she had multiple lesbian relationships that she carried on throughout her life. She loved the darkness, so she did not believe in the truth of God. And the point is this. Unbelief is usually moral before it is intellectual. We don't want to believe. We don't want to submit to the rule of God in our lives because then I might have to live differently. Unbelief is moral before it is intellectual. A love for the darkness informs skepticism. In fact, think about this often repeated phenomenon many of you are familiar with. The 18-year-old young man decides he's going away to college, and he goes away for a year to university. He comes back after that freshman year, and he, in conversation with his parents, begins to reveal he has some serious questions about the faith that he was brought up in. He has some serious questions about the Bible, much to the dismay of his parents. Sophomore year, he comes back, and those Questions are now well-formed skepticisms and suspicions about the whole thing. Fast forward to when this young man graduates from college, and he now declares himself a committed agnostic. What happened? How did this happen? Well, we might suppose, well, he showed up on the college campus, and those big, bad, secular university professors took his naive mind of mush and formed it into this well-reasoned skeptic, and that certainly can happen. But I would present another possibility. In fact, this is one I've seen as a youth pastor for a couple decades again and again. He goes off to college, and he decides, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to party. I'm going to get drunk every weekend, and I'm going to hook up with as many girls as I can hook up with. And you know what? He finds reasons to support his immorality. I don't want to live under the shackles and the bondage of Christianity. I want to live the way I want to live. So you know what? I'm going to find some skepticism for the faith I grew up in. It's very easy to justify immorality. We find these justifiable reasons. We are not so much rational people as much as we are rationalizing people. This is exactly what John's saying. Look at verse 19 again, again, and this is the crisis. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. Agape loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. They wanted to keep doing the evil work. Friend, if God gets in the way of my personal liberties and my own freedoms, well, then I'm going to reshape and reform God to be who I want him to be so I can live the way I want to live. Happens every day. And friends, this is not just a problem for unbelievers. It's not just a problem for college students at the evil secular university. John is revealing the inner workings of every human soul. 
your soul is being revealed right here. It's a question of love and hate. It's a question of passion. What are we passionate about? What do we love? It's easy to point to these other people, the the intellectual skeptic, to the drunken college student. What about the things that you struggle with or the things I struggle with? Are you quarrelsome? Looking to pick a fight? Are you easily miffed when somebody says something that just gets your crawl? I don't even know what that means, but it gets it. Are you divisive? Sowing seeds of discord and division? Something doesn't go your way. Are you prideful? Arrogant? We are experts at rationalizing these things. Oh, but you don't understand. I understand. You love the darkness. Your works are evil. It's easy to rationalize these things. So this is the first thing we see in the courtroom of the light. Friend, we must allow Jesus to expose that darkness and run to him and cling to him in faith, belief. This is the crisis. This is the judgment. People will reject Jesus and continue in unbelief because they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Here's the second thing, a disclosed cause. What is the cause of unbelief? It's going to be further disclosed in verse 20. We've seen some of the cause already in verse 19, but it goes a little deeper in verse 20. Look what the Bible says. For everyone who does wicked things, here's more hate, love language, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The purpose of the light that has come into the world is to draw people, to attract people to the truth. But friend, light also exposes. Light exposes. Light unmasks darkness. At the end of the day, there is darkness and there is light. Jesus is the light. And the light of Jesus brings division. The light of Jesus brings division. It can bring division in our families, in our world, in our communities, in our schools. The light of Jesus brings division. In fact, if you remember back in Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas, Pastor Wade preached from Luke chapter 2 about Simeon and, and, and Anna and Jesus being brought as a newborn baby to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And Simeon took baby Jesus in his arms and he lifted him up and he blessed him and he spoke a prophetic word to his mother, Mary. Notice what, G- what Simeon said to his mother, Mary, in Luke two thirty four. Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, we're in the middle of a political season or at the very beginning of it. And don't you love all the political signs littering our landscape? I say that tongue-in-cheek. No, we don't like it. But politicians will often present themselves, I'm a uniter, not a divider. And Simeon comes to Jesus' mother, Mary, and says, you need to know something. Jesus is a divider. He's going to pierce the soul of many. He's the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. And she, they hate the light. John 3.20 says, 
This is the cause of unbelief. They hate the light. It's not just that they dislike it. They loathe it. They abhor the light. Why? Light is very painful when you're in complete darkness. Light is very painful when you're in complete darkness. I'm a very early riser. I get up long before Amy gets up. I get up before the sun gets up. And, of course, in the pitch black when it's dark and I get up, I've got to have some light to find my glasses, to get my clothes off the chair. So I may turn my lamp on. We've got a dimmer on our lamp so I can see what I'm doing or get my phone out and turn the flashlight on the phone so I can find it. If Amy happens to be facing my direction when I first get up and the light comes on to find my glasses, how does she respond? Oh, honey, I hope you have a good day. No. Turn that light off! I'm dying here! Right? Now, it goes the other way. When I go to bed early at night, and I'm there between that moment of wakefulness and sleep, she decides at that point, I'm going to pick out my clothes for tomorrow. (laughs) And she goes into the closet, which is in a perfect line of sight of me. She turns the light on. Why is it that a 60-watt bulb can shine with the brightness of 10,000 suns? God, turn that light off, Amy. You're trying to kill me here, right? So we both do it. Light is painful when you're in the complete dark, right? And so some of you have probably been out in the woods or in your backyard, and you pick up a rock or a log, and what's underneath there? These little creepy, crawly things. What do they do when they're exposed? Oh, thank you for bringing the light. No, they scurry for the dark. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. This is why people don't come to Christ. Shame. Embarrassment. I don't want to be exposed. Have you ever been really embarrassed? I mean, really, really embarrassed. Maybe you said something. Maybe you did something. It may have been in public, in front of other people. And you get this feeling. You get this hot flash over your body. Anybody experienced that before? Oh, man, I can't believe I just said that. You know. The first grader, poor kid, accidentally wets himself in class. What does he do? He runs out of class in embarrassment, shame. Friend, that is nothing compared to the shame of the brilliant light of Christ exposing our wickedness. Why do people not believe? Why do people hate the light? Because their evil deeds will be exposed. Now, you might draw the conclusion from this that because people are afraid of their wickedness being exposed to the light, that no one will ever do public sins. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Public sins are flaunted in our culture every day. Don't make the mistake of thinking that in the light means public. No. Why do people openly display their wickedness for all the world to see? Because they've got another, an, enough dark people around them that they're still in darkness. It's public, but it's not in the light. It's still completely in the dark. There's no moral shame or fear in that. And mark my word, Christian... Unless God sends a supernatural revival to his church and then to this country, we are headed in a bad way. 
We won't turn the train around by electing the right politicians. We won't turn the train around by getting the right laws passed in legislature. And listen, I support the bill that Governor DeSantis signed into law into in Florida. I do not think four, five, six, seven-year-olds should be taught about sexual orientation in school, right? But those laws are not going to change the problem that people love the darkness. The only way we see a change in our world is if God decides I'm sending a supernatural breath of revival. Because, friend, this is not a political problem. It's not an educational problem. It's not a social problem. It is a spiritual problem that must be solved by supernatural spiritual means. And if there's something the church should do besides picketing and putting signs in our yards, we should be on our knees begging God to send revival to his church. This is our only hope. Things will become increasingly worse if God doesn't send revival. Why? Because everyone who does wicked things hates, absolutely despises, completely loathes the light. Remember what Jesus said to you, Christian? You are the light. If the world hates you, don't be surprised because it hated me first. This is the judgment, the courtroom of light hands down. Friend, as we move to a conclusion, we're going to move to this third and final thing, and this is where I believe by faith most of you are today. Number three, a declared confirmation. Here's the confirmation. But whoever that beautiful word, whoever, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you are here this morning and you have come to the light, you have embraced the light, you shine the light, here's what it does not mean does not mean that you are intrinsically a better person than people who love the darkness. doesn't mean that. doesn't mean that you're somehow more insightful. If you've embraced the light, don't start giving yourself a pat on the back. I'm a part of the light brigade. Woo-hoo! <laughs> no. You have come to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that your works are being carried out by who? God. God is all about his glory. And if you've embraced the light, it's not for your glory. It's for the glory of God. In fact, notice how different translations render this verse, specifically the last phrase. The King James Version puts it like this, but he that doeth, we love that word, doeth truth, cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that is clearly seen, that they are wrought in God. Look at the New American Standard Bible, but the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. The Christian Standard Bible. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. See, the ultimate distinction, the the ultimate contrast between the person in verse 21 and the person in verse 19 and 20, the ultimate distinction is not that one hates the light and the other loves the light. That's true, That's just not the ultimate distinction. The ultimate distinction is not even that one believes the gospel and the other does not believe the gospel. That is also true and consequential. It's just not the ultimate distinction. The ultimate contrast I believe this text is making for us is that 
what's being confirmed here, the real difference between the unbeliever and the believer is that God is working through the believer to accomplish a life of righteousness and holiness. This person walks in the light and does the things that are true so that his life through it, it will be clearly seen. It's all grace. It's all grace. Friend, you and I, we are debtors to grace. Debtors to grace. Notice how Paul put it in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will, that's the motivation, and to work, that's the deeds, for his good pleasure. You didn't pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. It is God who works in you. How did Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works, good deeds, lives of righteousness, and do what? Read that out loud with me. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's all about the glory of God. Why do we shine our light? Why do we embrace the light? Why do we love the light and hate the darkness? It's not because we're intrinsically better than other people. It's because God is working in us and through us for his glory and our good. I'll close with this. I learned an interesting thing about Benjamin Franklin recently. Do you know why we have street lights on most streets and cities in our country? We can thank good old Ben Franklin. He was living in Philadelphia, and he recognized, of course, we are in a different context, but in that early 1700s context, you have complete darkness, no electricity, even though he discovered it, but no electricity, no light bulbs lighting up the streets. And so you can imagine walking home in the dark with cobblestone streets and obstacles and trip hazards here and there. So Ben Franklin said, you know what, I'm going to serve my neighbors as they try to walk home. I'm going to hang a lantern on a pole when it turns dark every night. And Ben Franklin started doing that. He didn't create a campaign, the street lamp campaign. He just started putting a lamp on a pole outside of his home. And pretty soon people said, hey, that's pretty good. And people, other people on his street, when the darkness began to come, they said, hey, I'll put one up for people who walk by my house. And pretty soon this spread across Philadelphia. People had street lights on all these streets because people would come out and serve their neighbor by putting a lamp on a pole. We have street lights in every city today, thanks to good old Ben Franklin. What's the point? What would happen if we responded that way? If we said, you know what? I'm in the dark here in this world, and it is getting darker if that's even possible. But I'm going to put my light on a pole. She's going to light up my area. What if some other believers saw that and said, you know, I'm going to light up my area too. What impact could we make for the gospel? We would shine our lights. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. And that leads to my last thought. God has given you the true light in order that you would shine it to others. And may we be a people who does that. Let's go to him in prayer.